0: Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey.
1: Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's Lifetime Membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash rs10 today.
2: They asked me about the bodega. They
3: asked me about wanting. and I told them I I knew who he was. I told them everything I knew.
4: Barry was the one who told us what was going on with Wanchi, the Bodega, Nova, and he helped us greatly. So after talking to Barry, in my mind, we start with the Bodega, we lock up the Bodega owner, and from there, hopefully we can get him to cooperate against Nova. We get George to cooperate, he'll take us a long way.
2: Mullen Commission investigator Frank O'Hara has just left the Holiday Inn in Fort Lee, New Jersey, where he met with Barry Brown. And thanks to Brown, O'Hara believes he has an entry point into uncovering corruption in the 3-0.
4: Wanchi, the bodega owner. This was not like you had to be a rocket scientist. We weren't going to the moon. We had somebody that was supposedly a go-between. Well, let's see if we can make a case on him. Investigation 101. And that was our first thrust, to make a case on the bodega owner. Surveillance is O'Hara's
2: specialty, like when he bugged the office of mob boss John Gotti. O'Hara's run enough organized crime investigations to know you start low on the chain and try to work your way up. He's taking the same approach here, and his first step is to
4: see if he can get some eyes and ears on the inside. If you think you're just going to drive up there, two guys in a car, and sit on a corner and watch the bodega, well, how do you know what's going on inside? You can only see outside. So even if you see George Nova going to bodega, what's that mean? Did he buy a pack of cigarettes? Would he drop off three ounces of Coke? You don't know. You're not in the bodega. The only way you're going to get in the bodega is with an informant.
2: O'Hara's introduced to a short and heavy-set former crack dealer who just got out of prison. He tells O'Hara that he's ready to turn his life around, and he wants to help catch bad guys, especially dirty cops.
4: I called him Doughboy because he looked like the Pillsbury Doughboy. And he uh, he was a character. He was a real character. We talked to him, and he knew the 30th Precinct, and he told us some stories, hearsay from the street. And we took him for a ride in a van to right around the 30th precinct, and it was a learning experience for me. He pointed out people on each corner, northwest, southeast. They deal heroin and coke there, they deal coke and marijuana there. And he said, You could buy an ounce of cocaine in the 30th precinct, take it to Forest Hill, Queens, and double your money. That's why they were so busy, double your money. So we went by the bodega and I said, well, you think you could go in there, do a couple of different things?
2: O'Hara sends Doughboy into the bodega a few days later with a stack of Dominican newspapers. They normally sell for a dollar a piece, but O'Hara tells Doughboy to cut Wanchi a deal.
4: You have to build that trust Doughboy talked to the bodega owner, Wanchi. And Wanchi bit. He bought them for 65 cents on a dollar. Now they need to use that trust against him.
2: They need to catch him committing a crime with a stiff enough penalty that he'll want to cooperate. But drugs are too obvious. Wanchi's already a middleman for dealers and cops. They need to get creative By this point, O'Hara's got a very small and young team of investigators working with him.
4: One of the members of the Marlin Commission, Gregory Thomas, turned out to be a very, very multi-talented person, a very intelligent, smart person. And when you needed something, Greg was able to make things happen. He had this magic touch. And I learned something about food stamps.
2: Before coming over to the commission, Greg Thomas had run a case where he'd posed as a health inspector at takeout restaurants in crime-ridden neighborhoods.
3: Doing that work gave me a sense of what was happening in the streets more so than I ever knew. And at the time, food stamps were the currency of the inner city.
4: When I first heard about food stamps from Greg Thomas, I was oblivious to food stamps. And I got an education. In the city of New York, you could buy anything with food stamps. Anything. And when I say anything, I mean a car, drugs, clothes, appliances. Of course, they would be discounted. It was a black market currency. It was amazing. Well, I also found out that you could sell your food stamps.
2: Food stamps are issued by the US Department of Agriculture. The program is designed to provide assistance for people to buy groceries. The value of an actual stamp is around 50 cents on the dollar. And once a customer uses them, the store owner can redeem them with the government for the full dollar. But deals are made where people sell their stamps at a discount to store owners authorized to accept them, like Wanchi. The seller gets cash and the store owner gets the full value making a nice profit. Greg Thomas suggests they use Doughboy to make Wanchi an offer he can't refuse.
3: I said gold mine. With the right instruction to Doughboy, there's no way that we can't get the owner of the bodega to say yes to this. Because he's going to see value in this and it's going to be a scam that he hasn't been a part of before, but he thinks there's no way he's going to get caught because he's not doing anything that's going to be that obvious.
2: Food stamps, who cares about food stamps?
3: Nobody does. Well, we did.
2: O'Hara puts a wire on Doughboy, and he and Thomas listen in from a surveillance van on the street. Doughboy walks into the bodega holding $4,000 worth of food stamps. Wanchi snaps them up for $2,800 in cash, and then deposits them into his account for the full $4,000.
3: Once he bit with the first overture, I said, okay, this is going to be great. And over time, he kept going back more and more and more. We got him up to a major felony level on the federal side. And we had him
2: hooked. Over the next few months, Wanchi buys more than $20,000 worth of food stamps.
4: Wow, here we go. We got a federal crime. You're as good as your informant, and don't ever forget it.
5: Making these police corruption cases is very much like making organized crime cases. You have to build them up. You have to turn informants. You have to get wires up. My mind was racing, and my head was just totally spinning with
6: everything.
7: But I still felt this duty to do the
4: right thing, to at least tell these guys what I knew. The New York City Police Department has the greatest detectives in the world. Are none. The greatest. They crack cases day in and day out. How come they can't when it comes to corruption? Just a question. Just a question.
2: I'm Zach Levitt, and this is The Set. Episode 5, The Big Time. It's early morning, July 8th, 1993. Frank O'Hara is sitting in a car disguised as a livery cab. He's parked on Broadway, about 10 blocks north of the
4: 30th Precinct. We knew what schedule, and he came out of his apartment. We saw him coming down Broadway and we identified ourselves and said, you're under arrest. We told him why. We searched him before he got in the car, and we cuffed him. He had a loaded gun in his pocket. Thank you very much. You'd rather be lucky than good. And him having a loaded gun on him turned out to be good, because it was another federal crime. And it was stolen from somebody's house down south, so he was in possession of stolen property that came across state lines. Another federal felony. So he's got the gun felony. Stolen property felony, and he's got the food stamp felony. He realized he had a problem.
2: Wanchi's hustled into the car with Frank O'Hara, and they begin driving 30 minutes north of Manhattan to the city of White
4: Plains. I never BS somebody when we're trying to get them to cooperate. I said to him, listen, you're not going to go to jail for life. You're not even going to go to jail for 20 years. But you're probably going to go to jail for 12 or 14 years. That rings true.
2: O'Hara and Wanchi arrive at a discreet satellite office of the U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. SDNY prosecutes federal cases in Manhattan, and since food stamps are issued by the U.S. government, food stamp fraud is federal a young prosecutor named Michael Horowitz is waiting for them. Today, Horowitz is the Inspector General of the United States Department of Justice. But back in July of 1993, he was an assistant U.S. attorney in the Public Corruption Unit of SDNY.
7: When this case first walked in the door, I'm two years as a federal prosecutor. I'm not exactly the most experienced person and here I was in the office that had the reputation as being one of the best federal prosecutor offices in the country. And so this comes to me and we thought it's a risk. If He doesn't cooperate. We're going to have to figure out where, what we do next. But if anybody was going to cooperate in this situation and it made sense to cooperate, it was him. We had enough evidence on Wanchi. Frankly, the consequences for him of not cooperating were enormous.
8: You're immediately deciding to cooperate, is that correct? Uh Uh-huh.
2: This interrogation of Wanchi by Michael Horowitz is taken from official documents.
8: Which police precinct is your bodega in? The 30th.
9: How'd you pay for the purchase of your bodega? When I left school, um, I worked at a restaurant cleaning floors, and I was able to put together $7,000. I found a friend who also had 7000 and we bought the store. And then, in 1991, I became the sole owner.
8: On average, how many hours a day do you work in your bodega?
9: I start at 7.30 in the morning and work until 1.30 in the morning.
4: We started asking him questions. And he became very forthright and said, yes, I give money to the cops. This drug dealer leaves it. I give it to Nova. I give it to this one.
9: Yes, I was part of a transaction of taking money from the drug sellers for the police officers.
8: What did you understand the purpose of those payments from the drug dealers to be?
9: For protection so that they wouldn't be bothered. By whom? By the police. That's what I was told by a police officer named George Nova. How often would money be left in your
8: store by these drug dealers? Sometimes three times a week.
4: So what was said in the complaints about him at IED, he was admitting to. All right, so, okay, we're on the right track. We got somebody who's saying, yeah, I worked with the drug dealers and the cops. I was a go-between, and that's, gee, that's what it said in the IED complaint. So here's a guy admitting to the crime. And
7: what we learned that was perhaps most shocking, they weren't just taking payoffs. They were actually ripping off drug dealers with kilos of cocaine, And reselling them back to the drug dealer. So it wasn't just the regular payoffs. If the dealer wasn't doing the regular payoffs, they might get a kilo ripped off of them. And so now you weren't only having cops taking payoffs and cash. Now you had cops who were actually involved in drug dealing themselves. It's like the stuff of movies. It's... Let's make this story up, but it was real.
9: Many times the drug sellers would come and they would ask me to beep Nova because the drugs had been taken from their cars. One time I was standing by the door in my place of business and the drug seller came running from the other side and he asked me as a favor to beep Nova. And I asked him, what for? He answered that Nova had taken some drugs from the car And that the drugs belonged to them. And that they were paying Nova money so that they wouldn't be bothered by him. What did you do? I beat Nova several times. He came to the grocery store about 20 minutes later. he asked me what was going on. And I said that he had taken some drugs from some guys who were giving him money. He said that he had not taken it. I said, yes, you did take it. Because the drug seller saw you when you took it. Then he told me, fine, I did take it. He told me he was going to go and get it, but that they had to leave $1,000 with me at the grocery store.
8: What did you do after you received the 1000 from the
9: drug dealer? I gave him the money. I told him to give me some, and he said no. That he wasn't going to give me anything. Then he took a $100 bill, and he said to me, here. Taking.
8: Other than for monetary reasons, was there any other reason you agreed to act as a middleman for these transactions between the drug dealers and the police officers?
9: I didn't want to get on the wrong side of the police officers. I wanted to be a friend to the police officers. But at the same time, I also wanted to be, you know, to look good in front of the drug dealers because... I was afraid that they might do something to me if I refused to do it.
7: I said to him, why were you doing this? Why were you making the payoffs? And his answer was, what did you want me to do? Call the cops? I have drug dealers paying cops. Who do you want me to call? If I call, am I gonna get killed? And you don't appreciate the situation someone's in like that until you hear it. I didn't. What a dumb question to ask, right? And then he would say, the drug dealers and the cops would hang out in my store, my bodega, and take drinks and eat my food. They didn't pay for it. Said, that's why I did the food stamps. I had to survive. They were taking my stuff. What this brought home to me was the impact on the community of corrupt policing, bad policing. Not only how people like that can abuse the citizenry themselves, but how it makes the citizenry less safe from others. It's hard to imagine a situation where you live in a community where the drug dealers don't have to worry about the cops because they're paying the cops. But that's what we learned was going on in a very significant way. And I came to appreciate the significance of the case and why it was important because of what the impact was of the corruption, the endemic corruption by police officers to the community. As a go-between for the dealers and police, Harwitz
2: and O'Hara know that Wanchi was put in a terrible position. But they ask him to go back to his bodega and be a go-between again,
4: this time working for them. We told them that we wanted him to wear a wire. He agreed. And we said we were gonna try and make a case on George Nova.
7: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today.
1: Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts. The team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder every episode features special guests twists turns and the mystery of a missing co-host available on the odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts
4: people who are doing bad things become very observant on surveillance And even if you drive by every once in a while, after a while, they'll pick up on you. We didn't need anybody on the street because once they felt the heat, it would be nothing for Nova and his partner to pull over an investigator and say, license and registration and break their balls. So not being there out of sight, out of mind, that's where I'm going. Out of sight, out of mind, and you're good to go.
2: The corner of 140th Street and Amsterdam Avenue is now the set. It's where Wanchi's is located, and O'Hara needs to clear the set. So his next step is to set up a safe house for surveillance. He calls it a plant.
4: That's where things are manufactured. It's a plant. We're manufacturing tapes, we're manufacturing photos. It's a plant, that's why it's called the plant. Once again, O'Hara turns to Greg Thomas.
2: After coming up with the food stamp idea, Thomas has become the Mollen Commission Swiss army
4: knife. We had to find an apartment in Harlem. So Greg found us an apartment, and the two of us went up there.
3: So we walked, he and I, again, just understanding the context and dynamics. So me, young African-American, male, Frank, older, than me, male, white, going together into this building, which is predominantly African-American, right in Harlem.
4: We are on the elevator, and two ladies from the neighborhood get the elevator, and they look at us and said, oh, a new couple in the neighborhood, in the building. Oh, how nice. They thought we were a couple. So I played that up a little bit, and Greg didn't know what to do, should have go blind.
2: Once they set up their equipment, Wanchi's bodega gets wired up with microphones. O'Hara has a video camera placed inside a light box on the street corner to cover the outside of the store. And he puts a Mollen Commission investigator on the inside, posing as Wanchi's new employee. He's wired up too. And they're able to monitor everything from a safe distance at the plant.
3: We were nowhere near the bodega,
2: but the bodega was ours. It doesn't take long to gather evidence of Nova picking up drug money from Wanchi. And then they hear about a
4: large package of cocaine. Wanchi found out that George grabbed a kilo the night before, and he informed us. And we said to him, "Okay, get a hold of George, meet him, and see if you can't buy the kilo from him like you've done in the past. He said, "Okay, no problem. When Wanchi gets home that night, he
2: makes a phone call to Nova. The Mollen team is there with him, and they record the conversation.
9: Yeah. What's up? Nothing, man. These guys are driving me crazy with the thing from yesterday afternoon. Relax. Where are you? In my house. What time were you— I down outside. What time do you get off? When I get off, I gotta leave. I can't, I I have something to do. Oh, you can't be around here? Come down now. Right now?
10: Yeah, right now.
9: In about how long?
10: I'll be there in less than
9: a minute. That's why I'm telling you, come right down. In less than a minute? Go down to the middle of the block where you live. Okay, I'm going down. Okay.
2: Wanchi gets wired up and he goes down to the street to meet Nova.
4: And he said, George, I heard you got a package last night. I'd like to buy it. And George said, I'm sorry, it's too late. It's gone. It's gone. So we get George on a wire. I think a reasonable person would believe, after what Wanchi told us, that it was a kilo of cocaine. And then he goes and says, I heard you got a package. I'd like to buy it that most people would draw a conclusion that it was a kilo of cocaine. And George knew it was a kilo of cocaine because he sold it. We knew Nova was doing what he was doing. I mean, that, that was just another nail in the coffin. By now, they have enough to take a run at Nova.
2: But first, a crucial conversation needs to be had.
7: SDNY Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael Horowitz one of the key discussion points at that point was, who's going to be the assigned law enforcement agency on this? And that also could be the evidence custodian and do all the things you need to do to prosecute somebody. If there was a case made against NOVA or any other officers and they went to trial, I need agents to testify at the trial. The problem was the Malin Commission team was adamant that we not just go to the NYPD because of their failures in investigating George Nova. And so there was a real distrust there about whether the NYPD would take it seriously.
2: Mary Jo White is the former U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. At the time, she was the top federal prosecutor in Manhattan.
10: Milton Mullen, in order to preserve the integrity of the investigation, worried about leaks and worried about the dynamics of your investigating the NYPD, including internal affairs, wanted to do the investigation without briefing or having in the loop Ray Kelly, the police commissioner. I did not think that was viable from many perspectives, actually, because inadvertently Ray Kelly and his senior people could do something that would actually compromise the investigation because they didn't know what we were doing. I also feel very strongly that unless you have concerns about the head of the agency you're investigating, which we did not in terms of Ray Kelly, that it's just inappropriate for them not to be aware of what's being found. You know, it just is is bad government.
2: Mary Jo White calls a meeting in her office with NYPD Commissioner Ray Kelly, Judge Mullen, and Mullen Commission Chief Counsel Joe Armeo.
5: Judge Mullen turned to me and asked me to brief Commissioner Kelly on what the commission had found.
2: Kelly's been under the impression that the Mullen Commission has only been investigating IAD's past failures. He has no idea they've also been trying to build an active case. Armeo breaks the news to him about George Nova and that they have reason to believe that several others in the 30th precinct are also robbing and selling drugs.
5: I'm not sure if Commissioner Kelly ever believed that our investigation would get to this stage. And when he heard that it did, it actually had a physical effect on him. He tried to betray nothing with words, but his shoulders slumped and his face went gray.
10: Rick Kelly was very professional but it was a tragedy unfolding on his watch.
2: Kelly's surprise suggested IED was keeping him, the commissioner of the police department, in the dark, which gives the Mullen team even more concern about including the NYPD in the investigation, let alone taking it over.
4: Sometimes, uh, you know, my mouth goes into motion before my brain. My Irish comes out, I said, excuse me, we are inviting you into our investigation, not vice versa. We already have an investigation. You're not taking over this investigation.
7: I'm a bystander to this meeting, sitting in the room. And for the Malin Commission representatives there to say to the police commissioner of New York City, we don't trust your department to handle this is a very significant statement. And I I think people need to step back and understand the significance of that. The police commissioner of New York City, 40,000 police officers, hundreds if not thousands of officers dedicated to rooting out corruption in his organization, is being told by a commission that they don't have confidence in his people to investigate themselves, period and they don't trust his organization to handle this investigation.
2: The commission's biggest concern is a leak, coming from internal affairs, which could blow up the case. So U.S. Attorney Mary Jo White lays out the ground rules to Commissioner Kelly.
10: You're gonna be in the loop, but it's gonna be a very tight circle in order to preserve the integrity of the investigation.
2: Mary Jo White suggests that within that loop, will be a small group of internal affairs investigators handpicked by the Mollen Commission to work with them on the case.
5: We all agreed that that would be the best way to proceed. We knew once we were involved and looking over their shoulder, they had no choice but to be active and professional competent investigators.
2: So now the feds, the Mollen Commission, and the NYPD are all on the same side. I asked Frank O'Hara what the mood was
4: at that point. We all smoked a joint and said, Cubaya.
2: It's time to pick up George Nova. It's September 23, 1993. And just like he did with Wanchi, Frank O'Hara waits for Nova to head to work.
4: What we had to do is get him off the street to talk to before anybody knew he was missing. Because if he was due at work, that could cause a problem. Where's Georgie? Where's George? Nova begins driving,
2: and they pull him over quietly. They whisk him into another car that begins heading to the same SDNY satellite office in White Plains that Wanchi was taken to. Franco Harris sitting in the car
4: with Nova. I said, Listen, George, we are going to the U.S. Attorney's office in White Plains. You're under arrest for federal charges. This is not a state case. It's not a city case. This is a federal case. You've made the big time. You've made the big time. This is federal.
2: When they arrive, once again, Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael Horowitz is there to make his case.
7: Our job was to convince him that his best option was to cooperate with us. That if he didn't cooperate with us, he could go to trial, he would get convicted, and he'd spend a lot of years in jail. And that's not a place a police officer wants to end up. We had enough on the tapes to know he'd been taking payoffs for a long period of time from drug dealers, and we thought we had enough on the tapes, particularly if we started arresting drug dealers, to charge him with at least some of the drug dealing that he did. And that would have carried a very heavy charge because he not only would have been dealing with large quantities of cocaine, but keep in mind, he had a gun on him when he was doing it. Even though he legally had a gun on him, he had a gun on him when he was acting illegally. And so in federal law, that carries a pretty heavy additional penalty on top of it if you're drug dealing with firearms. And so he was looking at a lot of jail time. He had to hear what the evidence was He listened very carefully. It was clear he had thought about this. We weren't bluffing. If he walks away from that table and says, no, try me, I can convict him.
2: Next, O'Hara puts the pressure on. He tells Nova that he knows all about the kilo that he ripped and resold. And remember the stolen safe that Barry Brown told O'Hara about? The one that was cracked at the station house? O'Hara tells Nova he knows about that too,
4: right down to the dollar amount that he took. When you sit somebody down and say, on such and such a day, I know you were on the northwest corner at about 6.30 p.m., and the guy came up to you and handed you an envelope with $4,000. You put it in your left-hand pocket, you got back in a radio car, you drove north on Amsterdam Avenue, and you made a right. I'm putting myself in a radio car with you. So, you know, he's not a hardened criminal. He's going to say, yeah, that happened. He's got it chapter and verse. So when you tell him the truth and you got the facts, it really goes a long way with somebody like a George Nova. With a John Gotti, you could talk to him for six weeks and give him all the facts you want. He's not going to talk to you ever, ever, never. Because he's a hardened criminal. You could show them pictures. You could play tapes for them. Sounds like me, but it's not me. Yeah, it looks like me, but it's not me. And I got nothing to say. But Nova, we could tell that he realized he had a problem just on his facial expression. He was under the impression that we knew a lot more than we really knew. That's what you want, but you don't want to BS them. You don't wanna give them something that really didn't happen, because then they'll say to themselves, if they're sharp, oh, this guy's full of shit. But if you tell them chapter and verse what they did wrong and they did it, you can see, you watch their eyes going, oh shit, he knows everything. Psychologically, you got him.
2: O'Hara and Horowitz leave Nova, to discuss his options with his attorney.
4: We came back in a room and he decided to cooperate. I think that took all the 30 minutes, all the 30 minutes. George knew the gig was up.
2: The blue wall of silence in the 30th precinct has a crack. George Nova agrees to wear a wire and go back to work inside the 3-0, like nothing's happened. Frank O'Hara heads back to the Mullen Commission offices to speak with Joe Armeo, who still remembers the two words O'Hara said to him. He just looked at me in
5: the eyes like this and said, got him. We both knew that this would be the turning point. Because if you flip this guy, then he's going to tell you about his partners and you're going to just see how far, how extensive this ring of corruption exists. Frank knew what I was thinking. He knew exactly what I was anxious about and excited about, and he just summed it up in two words. Got him.
2: Armeo and his team of attorneys have quietly been gathering witness testimony and evidence about internal affairs past failures in fighting corruption. And public hearings to air it all out are scheduled to begin in just four days. The investigation into the NYPD's past and present failings are all coming together at once.
5: I remember going to see Judge Marlin personally about this. You know, usually Judge Marlin was um, pretty impassive, but when I told him that Officer Nova agreed to cooperate and he knew we were just on the brink of the public hearings, uh, I've never seen his face brighter than that. He lit up.
2: A little more than a year has passed since the formation of the Mullen Commission, and Armeo and Judge Mullen are closing in on the goals they'd set the first time they met each other. But they've made one decision which could threaten all of it, and they're about to upset a very powerful person.
7: Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. In normal circumstances, the NYPD corruption would be investigated by NYPD and be brought to their prosecutorial partner, which is the DA's office. Federal prosecutor Michael Horowitz. This was unusual because here we had police corruption at a local level being brought to the federal office by the Mullen Commission. And our view was, the Model Commission brought the case to us. There's a food stamp fraud angle here, so that's purely federal. And so our view was, this is our case, we're going forward. There's nothing on paper that would decide whether the cases go to the U.S. Attorney's Office or the DA's office when there's overlapping jurisdiction. In many instances, it depends on who got the case first. You may remember that the Manhattan DA was Robert Morgenthau.
2: Morgenthau was arguably the most powerful state prosecutor in the country, maybe in history. His nickname was simply The Boss. Morgenthau was a friend of Judge Mollin's, and Joe Armeo had worked in his office prior to joining the Molin Commission. It was Morgenthau who'd first recommended Joe Armeo to Judge Molin.
6: There was certainly a sense of comfort in the fact that Joe Armeo was going to be their chief counsel.
2: Dan Castleman was Robert Morgenthau's right-hand man in the DA's office. And he was also Joe Armeo's boss when Armeo worked there.
6: I liked Joe. I thought he was a pretty good guy. He was smart, and he did a good job. He was also very tightly wound and somewhat sensitive to any perceived slight. He's an intense guy. Joe very much felt that he had pulled himself up by the bootstraps. He almost had a chip on his shoulder about being Italian, for example. There was some class sensitivity and at times I felt like Joe thought that he wasn't as respected as people because of the way he had been brought up and his ethnicity. I thought it was nonsense, frankly. I mean, Joe didn't like to be overruled. And there were times when I may have overruled him. Here's our Mayo
5: on working for Castleman. Personality-wise, we weren't very similar and I didn't really have a lot of affection for Dan. I don't know. I just don't think Dan had the same kind of background that I did, you know, the same kind of uh, grit.
2: Let's take a quick step back, about one year before George Nova's arrest. Back in late summer of 1992, just after the formation of the Mollen Commission, Judge Mullen had set up meetings with all of the state and federal prosecutors in New York City. The commission would need to have a working relationship with the prosecutors if any cases were to be made against corrupt cops. And the first meeting was with the Manhattan DA, the boss.
6: Morgenthau and I were there from the DA's office, and Milt Mullen and Joe Mayo were there from the Mullen Commission. I don't think that it was any secret that Morgenthau was against the formation of the Molland Commission. He felt like there wasn't a need for a commission. And now you're going to have a redundant commission that has to prove itself. And the only way to prove itself is to make cases, and that can lead to shortcuts.
2: The DA's office already has a special unit for police corruption cases. So now, Morgenthau sees Molin as something other than a friend. He's also his competition.
6: But when it got down to brass tacks, Milt Malin's message was, we don't want to compete with you, we want to work with you. And so it was kind of a I wouldn't say a kumbaya moment, but it was, hey, we can do this together every step of the way. And I believed it.
5: I didn't get a sense that they felt we were stepping on their toes. But at the time, maybe I was naive enough to believe that, you know, we could all work together.
2: According to Castleman, after their meeting, the DA's office and the Mollin Commission began to share information about the bodega. And they made an agreement to work together to try to catch both Wanchi and George Nova.
6: Sitting in my office on the couch, Joe and Milt Mollin swore allegiance to a partnership with the Manhattan DA's office.
2: Back to where we left off. Late September 1993, just after the arrest of George Nova. Assistant U.S. Attorney Michael Horowitz calls his counterpart in the DA's office to alert
7: him. I called to let him know that we had not only arrested Nova, but he was cooperating with us, and that we were now in the middle of potentially some very big corruption in the precinct. The DA's office expected... Marlin Commission to bring the case to them and were furious that they brought the case to us. And it was clear he wasn't going to be having a very pleasant conversation with Bob Morgenthau.
2: Dan Castleman here's the news.
6: I got furious because we're partners and you don't lie to your partners. Do it on your own when you're supposed to be in a partnership and then refer to a different agency without telling us. That is not the way this is supposed to work. It's duplicitous. That was it for us.
2: Castleman tells his boss, the boss, Robert Morgenthau, who's upset that his friend Judge Mollen and his former employee, Joe Armao, would take the case to the feds in the Southern District. So he has Castleman go over to the SDNY offices to give them a message.
6: I said, I'm not here to ask you not to prosecute the case. I would prefer it if there was some way to leave us with the case. But I'm a realist, and I know you're taking the case. I'm here to tell you that we got fucked by the Mollen Commission, And as a result, we will never, ever, ever work with them again. You want to work with these duplicitous fucks? That's up to you. We choose not to. We'll go and do our own thing.
5: Joe Armao. What is their gripe that somehow we stole their case and brought it to the U.S. Attorney's Office? I mean, it's just absurd. It's just absolutely ridiculous. It's just so ridiculous. You're talking about 30 years later, these people are just incredibly childish. Um, I can't remember anyone in the DA's office reaching out to me and saying, look, if you guys develop evidence about police corruption, we want you to bring it to us. We want to be the agency to prosecute it. It was Judge Mollin's
2: decision to take the case to the feds instead of the DA's office. An obvious choice,
5: according to Armeo. Look, you know, when you speak about district attorneys looking into law enforcement, I think there is an institutional conflict of interest because ultimately, they have to depend on the police to gather evidence for them and help make their cases. So there probably isn't a great deal of uh, enthusiasm for going after cops who may be corrupt. They don't want to cause that kind of headache for the police department. I think you have to have the will to want to make these cases, and you have to be able to understand that you may suffer a lot of fallout and political consequences with the PD. It doesn't look like they
7: did.
2: Mullen looked at the decision objectively, but Morgenthau is famous for taking things personally, especially when it's about a case he believes should be his. U.S. Attorney Mary Jo White.
10: Bob Morgenthau could be vindictive. He does famously hold grudges. And if he thought that someone had wronged him, he didn't forget it. And he would look for an opportunity to make you remember.
2: The Mollen Commission is now in the middle of an active case in the 30th Precinct and a nasty turf war with the DA's office. Plus, after investigating internal affairs for more than a year... The commission's public hearings are about to begin. Some dirty laundry is about to be aired out in the city.
5: I had a teacher in high school who said the mark of a true New Yorker is when plane loads of horseshit are dumped on the streets of New York. The New Yorker goes out and gets taller boots.
2: on the next episode of the set. The history of police corruption investigations in New York has run in
3: 20 years cycles of scandal, reform,
6: backslide, and fresh scandal.
2: The Mollen Commission's public hearings are underway. There was times when I was shocked that I got away with so many of these things. New York City is introduced to a rogues gallery of corrupt cops. Did you develop a nickname? Yes, I did. What was
5: that nickname? The Mechanic. And why were you given this nickname? Because I used to tune people up.
2: An anonymous testimony
4: from a current cop gets everybody's attention. Somebody said to me, Frank, what he just described was a Banana Republic precinct operating in the city of New York. If this is true and they got the facts, wow.
2: The set is created, written, and directed by me, Zach Levitt. Executive produced by me and Chris Corcoran. Produced by Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited by Perry Kroll and Alistair Sherman. Research by me and Ian Mont. Mixing and mastering by Bill Schultz. Original music by Joel Goodman. Marketing, PR, production coordination, sales, and operations by Maura Curran, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, Hilary Schuff, Lauren Vieira, Lucas Santrone, Sean Cherry, Lizzie Roberti, and Danny Cuttrick. With special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Leah Reese, dennis Tim Clark, Craig Cox, Callum Togas, Rob Mirandi, and Eric Donnelly. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of The Set.